From Bowling Green State University and the Institute for the Study of Culture and Society, this is BG Ideas. I'm going to show you this with a wonderful experiment. Welcome to the BG Ideas podcast, a collaboration between the Institute for the Study of Culture and Society and the School of Media and Communication at Bowling Green State University. I'm Jolie Sheffer, an Associate Professor of English and American Culture Studies and Director of ICS. This is the second of two episodes featuring the ICS Spring 2018 Faculty Fellows. ICS is proud to sponsor fellowships to promote the research and creative work of faculty here at BGSU. Those who receive awards are freed from one semester of teaching and service to devote unimpeded time to the projects they have proposed. These projects must be of both intellectual significance and social relevance, and hopes that their work will generate conversations across disciplines and engage both academic and broader community audiences. Today, we are joined by Dr. Nancy Patterson, a professor of education in the School of Teaching and Learning in the College of Education and Human Development. Dr. Patterson earned her PhD in curriculum and teaching from the University of Arizona, and her research areas center on democratic classroom and school pedagogies and academic freedom and equity in assessment. Dr. Patterson is here to discuss her current project entitled, But I Want to Say What I Want to Say, Ohio Student and Teacher Perspectives on the First Amendment. Dr. Patterson has conducted interviews with K-12 students as well as their teachers for this project. Her work is informed by current case law about First Amendment protections, and her interviews focus on interpretations of the First Amendment and free speech in Ohio classrooms. I am very pleased to welcome Dr. Nancy Patterson to the program as one of ICS's Spring 2018 Faculty Fellows. Thanks for joining me, Nancy. Thank you. What an honor. We're very excited to have you here. Uh, Can you talk a little bit more about the project you're working on and how it began? Oh, probably began when I was seven. I don't know when I, I've always had a, uh, I'm from an educator family and I always have had a strong sense of voice and choice in our family um, and felt that when I was in school, I think I really needed more. And some people become teachers because they have a favorite teacher and I became a teacher because I needed a favorite teacher. Uh, So I've, I've been in education for many years, and uh, when I began at BGSU, actually when I began as a PhD candidate to create my dissertation project, it was all about inquiry and student engagement with content and flipping the way we teach so that students experience something first, label it afterwards and discuss it. So rather than teaching and lecturing in a student-centered classroom. So I've had that going on a lot uh, for a long time in my professional career and my personal life. Uh, And then once I came to BGSU, I began training teachers and visiting many classrooms. And it's always been a strong commitment of mine to use best practices it's interesting that we know these things work with students, yet we don't find them in the field as readily as you would think or as frequently. Not so common. So that's where the project emerged from. I've done previous studies with teachers and was very concerned about teacher self-censorship. And I did some Ohio studies where I found, in fact, that testing and standards were having a chilling effect on teachers' abilities to make their own curricular decisions. So 
We always thought teachers were the gatekeepers, but the gate has slammed shut a little bit since No Child Left Behind in 2001. So emerging from studies of teachers and having a sense and learning over over the years that there aren't many studies done with adolescents because of the difficulty of getting permission, that's when this, the idea started to germinate. So I work with so many teacher candidates a year, I really wanted to get back in the classroom and visit with students. So I planned it quite carefully so that I'd have a full year so that I'd be able to really dig in and not just do survey research, have conversations. So that's why ICS was a good match for me. So one of the things that, as you know, part of the mission of ICS is to encourage collaboration across traditional disciplines. And so your work is very much centered in teacher education, but you're also drawing on First Amendment case law as well. Could you talk a bit about what you found compelling about putting these in conversation with each other and the ways in which maybe the existing scholarship on teaching of social studies hadn't necessarily addressed it in the same way that you do. So it started because I was trying to find out what protections the law would provide for teachers who were teaching about controversy, and the case law was dismal, uh, not good support in the current configuration or past configuration of the Supreme Court since the 70s. There haven't been rulings in favor of teacher rights. Teachers are defined as agents of the state. So it actually has a huge impact on teachers, what what the law says. Superintendents and principals use those, those, uh, those laws in similar ways for high schools. I primarily addressed uh, high school. And we're in a culture where people get sued so frequently and schools are political places. Of course, the administrators pay attention to what is okay to do do with students. Some of the some of the case law that you have referred to is really quite interesting and funny. Could you talk about um, some of those key moments that at, le- at least maybe in earlier moments in 68 and at other uh, times have really expanded or clearly created conversations around what kinds of speech are protected and what are the limits of that in schools? Right. So I, as I read along, the limitation piece became really very critical. And you wouldn't think that students would care about case law. But when I walked into high schools, right away, I started telling stories. And one of the stories that caught everyone's attention was the Bong Hits for Jesus case. And that case was um, was an interesting, I think probably period piece, like some of them, if, they be, if they'd be retried today, there might be different findings. But the students were really interested that a young man put up a sign that said bong hits for Jesus on a big banner in front of a lot of students coming back from, I think it was an Olympic event because it was Salt Lake Olympics in that year in 2005 coming up. And so the Olympic torch was coming through town and the students were just coming back from that event and busloads of high school students saw the sign. The speech was limited at the Supreme Court level. That uh, biggest argument was that students can't promote illegal drug use, and there were conversations about whether or not he was doing that. So that's a case that lit up the students, and it's also interesting for adults to talk about. 
And I do believe that it may there may be different decisions in the current context, but it still stands, as does uh, the famous Tinker case from 1968. Tell us a little bit about that case, and because that's in the a moment of great student activism, right? Kind of similar um, to today. Yeah. So how did that case, what issues did it bring to public attention and how did the courts decide where the boundary is for what is protected and what isn't protected speech? So as far as I know, it's one of the four Supreme Court cases involving student First Amendment rights, and it was the earliest one. I believe that Mary Beth Tinker, one of the defendants, is still giving tours. And in fact, she's speaking at a social studies conference later this year with us. So it continues to have an impact. It was foundational for teacher and student rights because these four seventh graders won their case. Their parents obviously filed the case for them. They wore black armbands with peace signs to school. They were asked not to come back with those black armbands. They did. They were suspended. And this is protesting the Vietnam War. This was in 1965, I believe the case began. It wasn't settled until 69. So yes, they were, it was war protest symbols. And the court upheld their right to do such as long as it wasn't disturbing the educational environment, and the famous quote that we all continue to live by is that teachers and students don't leave their First Amendment rights at the schoolhouse gate. So the students really resonated with that too, especially in the current context with taking a knee in high schools. So that wasn't only an NFL thing. It happened on soccer fields. I learned from my interviews that it happened during the halftime with band members. So that that sort of has ignited youth. Yeah, we really are in a moment where I, I think for a long time the rhetoric has been that students are apathetic, but you can't say that in the current moment with the taking a knee, with the Parkland students and the you know walking out of school against violence and things. So with this backdrop, I mean, what with all of your interviews of current high school students, how do they understand their free speech rights? So I did a sorting activity with, uh, I think, 28 focus groups of four to six students. And I put their First Amendment rights out on the table, and I assured them about Tinker that the First Amendment rights were, in, in fact, their rights. And I asked them which one they felt was most important, and speech was hands down everyone's first choice, perhaps because they told me it's because they use it all the time. They don't feel like their religious freedoms are threatened. They don't really care about newspapers, which is a whole different topic. But they, uh, they are very adamant about their, their love of that freedom, and I know that it's only increasing their awareness of it because they have such freedom on social media, which for how long, we do not know. It's probably the next thing that'll be litigated as far as limitations. And they not only, they see it as their conversations that they have with each other, but they also argued that they would prefer to have more time in classrooms to deliberate. They seem to enjoy our conversation so much. Tell us about how the process of you, you know, being part of these schools and having access to these students, how did you go about that? And 
I can imagine one might think that administrators would be wary about having you come in to talk about this, but what was your process and how was your experience of working with students, teachers, and administrators on this project? I think that's a great question, and that's how the year unfolded in the beginning with me very conscious of the access, and any researcher is challenged by getting access, especially to adolescents. I was very uh, heartened by the welcomes I had, and I believe it's because I have relationships with teachers across the state because I'm a methods professor and I maintain those relationships. So I initially approached my students, who are now my colleagues, who are now teachers, and they know me. I think otherwise it, it might have been very difficult I tried, a, a colleague of mine who's helping me conduct the research, tried to help me contact some districts where I didn't know teachers and we couldn't get in. So also I was concerned about our relationship with the local school district here, and particularly and especially, and the first thing I did was to contact our superintendent and ask for a meeting and explain the study, and I was required to do that legally. I think I would have done it anyway, but federal law requires that I have approval, especially with minors, and so the access worked out pretty well. Out of the 12 I contacted, uh, seven schools, five districts invited me in, and uh, it was I was well rewarded because the students obviously loved the topic. The students obviously have great interest and concern, lots of great ideas, and it was different than a survey. So I had, I made, I, you know, I, I think it was relationships with people. The study was all about that. And in all of these conversations that you had, what were some of the most salient issues or themes that came up for the students? Yes. So I interviewed teachers as well. I knew what the teachers were going to say. I've studied teachers and their environments for many years. But wow, the students were surprisingly communicative. They may not know what their rights are, which is not really on them. It's on us, on the teachers. But once they did, they were very interested in giving their opinion. So I would say valuing speech above all, being afraid, afraid of getting in trouble or just not actually ever having thought about how to access their rights to free speech. So that was the second one. Some quite severe self-censorship. Uh, they don't know who to talk to. They haven't, they haven't learned how to use their rights. Um, they, they seem not to have much agency. So first of all, you have to know about them, and then you have to know creative and respectful ways to use them. So I think that's the fear of adults, that they'll just say whatever they want. I want to say what I want to say. But they're not going to. I think they're going to say what they need to say. They just need a little bit of help from adults. And then there was a lot of, I've already referenced the knowledge, the need to know things. So they need more avenues and more practice at using these various skills. And uh, we also had more than one set of students, probably at a couple different schools, talking about their teachers also self-censoring. So teachers not being able to say who they were, teachers not having time to, to promote deliberative discussion, evidence-based arguments. So 
they would like to see their teachers have a little more freedom as well, which was an interesting observation on their part. That was one of the things that really interested me, that really caught my attention in your talk about students really want to learn how to have civil discourse about contentious issues. Yeah, they don't want to get in trouble. But they don't want to, right. They're not looking for an excuse to just mouth off. They're looking to learn how to work through the issues that the grown-ups are also struggling to talk about. I did have a very rare example of someone who thought it was unfair that they weren't allowed to use profanity. So, But in general, they were reasonable requests. One example is of a cell phone policy in a particular school. And one student was saying, we should have more freedom to use our cell phones. And another student was saying, well, why do you need your cell phone? We have what we need, and we can use our cell phones outside of school. And the student's response was, okay, maybe it's not that we want complete and total freedom with our cell phones, but we would just like to be able to present our argument. Very mature, mm-hmm. right? And that's a responsible expectation. We don't get to have everything we want, but we should be able to have the freedom to ask and some kind of a pathway. Hmm. Another thing that um, what I found really interesting is you talked about how um, discussion about First Amendment rights and debate and all of that doesn't happen equally for all students. Could you talk a bit about how our current educational practices sort of provide room for some students to get training in this and other students get left behind? Yes, this is a tragedy. And it was very apparent. So I interviewed mostly students of American government. Either they had had it or they were in it. And the reason I did that was because I thought they would have some grounding and a little bit of uh, prior knowledge. And I wanted to speak with older students who had more experience with school. So I would go for a day and I would have all government students and very often they all had the same teacher. And so I would... I would inevitably work with an AP group of students. So I would say out of the seven schools, there were four AP classes that I talked to, and it might have been one or two focus groups. Usually the AP classes also, they're overrepresented in my study because those are the students that stepped up and volunteered. So they were... An AP is advanced placement. Advanced placement. So students can elect to be in these classes. Some schools have a an application process for you to be in it. And ultimately they take a test in the spring that's a very intensive written test about inquiry and use of documents. So they're training for that all year and they take that test in the spring and it can award them college credit. So it's a very serious group of students, but they they had more practice talking, you could tell that. And they had more content knowledge and they had more examples from history of people who have acted. So all of the things that I found that were problems that students were suggesting or the five themes that I came up with, the AP students seem to have overcome those. And I haven't finished my data analysis yet, and I really should stress that these are preliminary findings. But I do believe there's probably some significant difference. Not a good word to use because it's not a... Not, we're not a, talking a, statistically. Not, yeah, we're not. Yeah. But 
But I think the urban, the rural, and the suburban schools, the students will, I'll see some differences. And I don't know exactly what those are yet, but probably similar to the AP uh, advantage. And so what you've kind of inferred from that is students in not in the AP track, their time is being taken up with more conventional testing, much more, leaving less time for this kind of inquiry? I think so. The, the AP students, I, I believe that they can, be, they can use their AP exam to exempt them from the state test. I think it's also a cultural difference, not necessarily all about the testing, but it's a, it's a way we track students, and sometimes that's important and sometimes that's good. But I think with something as critical as your First Amendment rights and the foundations of your work that you're doing as a citizen, everybody needs to get that in a consistent way. I don't just mean learning your First Amendment rights. I mean practicing speaking and practicing petitioning and practicing the skills. So maybe the students that aren't in AP know their rights. They just have less practice. In exercising. In exercising them. Mm The media we've, has rather extensively covered issues of free speech and First Amendment rights on college campuses, yes. um, but we don't hear it the same way about um, K-12. So how have some of these issues affected the ways in which younger students understand the right to free speech and teachers? So what are the lessons they're taking from the more high-profile examples, and how does it operate differently within high well, schools? Well, they're minors. So they are far more protected, and I think that's legitimate. That's entirely appropriate. But then again, maybe not so much difference because a freshman college student was very, you know, a very short time ago, a a high school senior. So I think that the college studies are predictive of what's happening in high school, and I think the college studies... I think the studies I've read of uh, high school survey, surveys of high school students probably need to take a look at what's going on with the college data. The, co- the questions that are being asked in college, I use some of them in high school, and I think they're really good. Would you shout down a protester? Would, who's right? Who has the right in that situation? And the finding from the recent Brookings study that of college students in a national survey think that violence is appropriate to silence uncomfortable or offensive topics. So I, those, those studies informed what I looked at and I, I think we should pay very careful attention to them. And perhaps uh, the Knight Foundation needs to expand what it's doing in high schools. I'm going to ask them. Yeah. So they've done longitudinal surveys, and I think we need to get that out. The Museum First Amendment Center is also doing some really good work of the general population. So we're hearing from the general population, we're hearing from college students, we're hearing from high school students, but maybe across those three databases there could be some, some more vetting of questions and more publicity. 
yeah. of those findings. It is quite interesting in your role. You've been talking with high school students who before too long will be college students thinking about these things, but you're also seeing working with college students becoming teachers who will be going back into high schools to teach. Right. Um, they, those are, I mean, among that 19% are people who want to be teachers, I'm sure. <laughs> so really, these are conversations that we are having them separately, but it's really part of a single system. And we're trying to train people to be engaged citizens. And yet we're ourselves often uncomfortable having these conversations. So yeah, how can we expect the students to do better? Right. And those 17, 18 year olds are caught because they're just, they're not quite minors. Maybe we can do something to work with early voting in more deliberate ways I think a lot of times that's what happens in schools. The students say, well, I'm, I can't do anything yet. Well, that's not true in any sense. They can be involved in public policy. Um, well, that is one of the things that you said. Some students, in responding to your questions, thought that they didn't have First Amendment rights yeah. yet. Yeah, indeed. I'm not sure where that's coming from. That's a... That's a huge misconception. But there is a sense that for some students, this sense that they are kind of outsiders to political engagement until they hit that birthday yeah, and it's strange in some ways. Because they're they're driving, you know, they're they're doing all kinds of things as young adults. They're young leaders. I like the model of First Amendment schools. I've heard about it, I've never visited one, and I'm not sure how active they are. But in my view, that kind of a school wouldn't hide any of these things. Not that schools are purposefully hiding from students or, or denying them, but it's just a lack of emphasis on the democratic processes that we should practice in school. John Dewey talked about it years ago, democracy and education. And I do believe that schools mirror society, society mirrors schools, is, uh, is our society what we want to see in schools? Is there a way that schools can drive the agenda of democratic practices and activism more? But I, I think it's scary mm -hmm. to give kids, kids power. <laughs> yeah. Um, what are some of the, just think about what works well. What are some of those best practices that you've seen with teachers trying to foster free speech what are some of those best examples of strategies, methods, pedagogical practices that really do get students thinking critically and learning to exercise their rights? There are so many. And I think over time, the, the numbers of programs and nice models have amassed. The Ohio Council for the Social Studies is behind this agenda. We try to provide, pr promote and provide professional development for teachers that is grounded in these types of best practices. But there's a program from the Center for Civic Education that's historic. It's been around, a couple of them that have been around for a long time. One's called We the People, and I like it because it involves all students in a particular government class. You cannot cherry pick, but the students learn constitutional principles and they participate in state hearings. Then they can win, Finley High School wins. Uh, regularly in Ohio. They'll be in D.C. next week or in Virginia, I believe. And that's not something just for AP students. That's for all kids in a particular class. So I like those kinds of programs. 
Project Citizen teaches younger students how to identify public issues and identify stakeholders, try to build public policy. So that's an, a petition piece. My, something's wrong here with our government. How do we use government to fix it? But I think just they're not whole-scale changes, but just on a day-to-day -day basis, giving half of the time in your class to an interactive activity of some sort there are many different kinds of discussion strategies that work. I love one called Structured Academic Controversy, where students are put in quads. So it's not a traditional debate format where six kids can be involved, but it's a debate format where every person in your classroom is involved. It's more of a discussion and, and argument analysis activity. So students become an expert on opposite sides of a controversial topic. They end up having to argue the opposite side of the issue. So it's not exciting. I've found, I've noticed over the years that I've taught it to method students, it completely chills out the emotion in an argument, but you can get to the argument, so the emotions go away. Right, so it isn't just about winning or being louder, but you actually have to think through, yeah, every, oh. there are complexities and yeah. what's the other side? And it's an old thing. I mean, we've known about it since the late 60s, so. I think that teachers know these things. And when I talked to teachers, they said, we don't need more professional development on how to have an active classroom or to teach civ civic education. We need the time to do it. So unfortunately, that's a huge policy issue for education and, nationally. Yeah. And can you talk about some of their, um, what teachers have said to you about what they feel is taking time away from that? They, they have much to cover, and I've seen their standards. I've been involved in their standards. Uh, the studies I've done about assessment in Ohio and nationally have shown that these tests have a chilling effect on teachers. They, they, they default to a more sage-on-the-stage approach to delivering information We've also done studies that have shown that students don't remember that kind of teaching. So maybe it's a short-term regurgitate it for the test, and there hasn't been any deep shift in their schema or the ways they think. So, But, but I've also met teachers who manage to do that anyway. In spite of the test, they use an inquiry-based model, and their students still do, still do well. So that was one of our... Ohio studies that I did with a, a friend, and we found that giving students time to deliberate in class, they perform well in the test anyway. So I think it's some kind of a test paranoia, perhaps, on the part of some of us. The test is there, you have to teach to it. Well, really, the curriculum is there, and when you teach to that, the test just comes. You know, you've talked about teachers sort of censoring themselves a lot or feeling nervous about sharing personal views or political opinions or things like that. Now that in this era of social media awareness and constant connectivity, do teachers talk specifically about that as a complicating factor and how they navigate what they share when they're increasingly visible and sometimes targeted for personal opinions shared on social media? So how does social media fit into some of this stuff? I know what we do at the College of Education. There are too many cases of people losing their jobs, so we just we advise our students to take their profiles down entirely. However, I've seen and I follow 
my former students who are now my colleagues and I see healthy Twitter feeds and I see all kinds of good things going on. When I taught AP with one of my students at BG High School, uh, that's when I started to tweet because it was great to be in touch with the students. So I think that, that you can use it to make connections. That whole idea of addressing controversial topics is a, a different thing. And that's just a regular um, professionalism habit to be adult on your social media. So I think maybe things are changing a little bit. People are learning better how to use it responsibly. But for certain, the courts are not supporting teachers in the teaching of controversy. I have been advised by the general counsel of the National Education Association I did a special issue on academic freedom a number of years ago, and he contributed an article, and his suggestion was the courts are not favorable right now. They're calling teachers agents of the state. There's a, Gar a case called Garcetti, a whistleblower case, that's been used against teachers in numerous court cases. So he and others are recommending that what teachers should do is work at the local level to make sure the school board supports the teaching of controversial topics, make sure everyone's informed when you're doing these things, that you have the support of your administration. And there are schools, there are many schools that are doing these things successfully. It's just extra work for the teacher and extra care, which I always encourage my students to consider how important that is. It's worth the extra work. And I, I, saw, I saw a lot of good things yeah. uh, happening with teachers, but they're just so busy, too. Yeah. They're really constrained by time as well. I like, you know, you are an active Twitter user. How, in terms of reaching the, the students, what kinds of conversations do you see happening on Twitter? And how does social media allow for them to communicate and work through some of these ideas about free speech and their rights, maybe differently than they do in the classroom? Nobody follows me, so I have no idea. I'm new, and I, and I, the students I worked with at the high school a few years ago, they said it's just so much work to get a good tweet that gets retweeted. So, so I am not the best person to answer. And I also think that Snapchat's where it's happening, and I don't. I don't do that. I've tried. My nieces have tried to help me. It's hard to keep I up just, with the constant it's a lot. change of where but those was, conversations are I, happening. I was really committed to the voice of students in this study, and I wanted people to know. So when I have a an important thing, I think that can contribute. That's when I that's when I get on social media. We'll see what happens. I've been off for a year, and I know how quickly things change as far as how we communicate. So. I'll see what happens with my method students in the fall. The last time I was in the classroom, I wasn't really tweeting, so. I think that's different now. As you know, ICS is invested in fostering conversation outside of academia, as well as within BGSU. And at your talk, you had teachers and students of education here. You had community members. I had some um, high school kids. You had high school kids there. Yeah. So, you know, what are some of the questions, the broader questions you're trying to raise with your work? You know, why do you think this is such an important and relevant topic now? Something happens entropy-wise. I think we devolve as cultures, and history shows this, 
into lack of attention toward the human rights of all people. But I also think there's, while there's this entropy that, that takes us down into war and conflict and injustice, there's also something in the human spirit that sparks this generation or any generation to react against that. So I, th I think the message is that we have possibly overcomplicated education to the point where it's not meeting its intended purpose of building a healthy society, creating a, a happy and safe and prosperous democracy. And I believe that education is the foundation for that. So the awareness is democracy in schools needs work. And it's always something that needs to be defended in each generation and, and, and maintained. It's like a garden. You know, it'll go, it'll go wild in, in two days with a lot of rain. So we just have to be vigilant. And I think the students are speaking pretty loudly. And I also don't think it's that difficult to do. It's just somebody tending that garden and getting in there and doing a little bit of elbow work, you know, a little bit of hard work. Any lessons you'd like to, uh, from what you've learned and what you've been thinking about and researching and studying, any lessons you would want to share or pieces of advice that you'd want to give to current students or to future teachers out there based on what you know? Yes, I think it has to be a community of learners that gets this done together. So the students have shown us that they can get things done. I mean, history has shown us that youth and all different types of groups of people can achieve things together. So I think that we need to take care of our, our organizations that work toward those goals. I think our social studies teachers should help each other out and be part of our our local organizations. Well, I hope we have a swing back. People are not joiners anymore. And these are not issues that affect a few people. So I think that's the work. I don't know how to mobilize people. I hope that we have plenty of time to do that in which to do that before we lose some sense of civility for, you know, that it's going to be hard to get back if that goes away. And if a generation of youth is communicating in a way that we don't understand, we're going to lose them. So I would love to get back to you on that when I've pondered my, my data. And, and I, I do have two wonderful veteran teachers, and uh, one of them stepped up on the night of the study came up to me and said, I'd really love to help you. So I would also encourage anyone who hears this, I have so much data and so much information if anybody's interested in helping fund further studies or, <laughs> or help us analyze the current data. There's so much to do. Great. Thank you so much, Nancy. It's a pleasure talking to you and hearing more about your project. Our producer is Chris Cavera. Special thanks to the College of Arts and Sciences and the Bowling Green High School Center for the Performing Arts, who hosted uh, Nancy's talk. Thank you.